This past week, I'm sure most all of you heard that the White House made an announcement and mentioned some student loan forgiveness stuff this week. I had some thoughts and some views about it myself, but I got to be honest, what I was really disappointed by more than anything was the response that I saw on Facebook and social media by Christians. And I don't agree, disagree with responses. I, I try not to engage with that kind of stuff, but what I noticed was a complete lack of love and compassion across the board from everyone, from at least most people. I won't say everyone. But it just struck me how much Jesus had to object to and all the Roman policies and laws that he could have spoken up about and, and made mention of, and yet everything that he said was laced with love and compassion and grace and mercy. And church, that's what we have to do also. Uh, regardless of where we stand on things, I don't, I'm not saying your view is right or wrong. We, we don't dive into politics a lot here at Grace. But whatever our views are, have got to be founded in love and compassion and mercy and grace. From reading some of the comments and the way the comments were written, I almost got the idea that some people see each other, see the other political party or a particular uh, political uh, person or policy or, or whatever it was as the enemy, as, as this is what we are here to stand up and fight against. But Scripture is clear right? Our enemy is Satan. We don't have a battle in this world against the flesh and blood, against the, uh, the rulers of this world in, in any way, shape, or form, but our, but our enemy is, is Satan, and it's his angels and his demons that, that follow him and worship him. That's who our battle is against. And as we dive into Matthew today, what we're going to see is actually Jesus's temptation uh, Satan attacking Jesus with temptation and how Jesus responds because Jesus knows who the real enemy here is. And it's not the people of the world, it's Satan. A couple years ago, I was asked to participate in a fantasy football league. Um, and I told Eric, who invited me, I just said, you know, I, I'm not really into football to that degree. I love watching football. I love kicking back on a Sunday afternoon and watching some games, falling asleep to some football games sometimes, as Sundays are a long day for me. Uh, but, I, but I love watching some football. But I don't follow players. I don't follow the stats. I don't see the trades that happen in the offseason. I don't, I don't really get into football. And he said, don't, that's fine. Don't worry about it. No one really in our league does that. And if you're not familiar with fantasy football, what happens is, is there's a draft where you get to pick people of, of, who play in the professional football games and the, the yards that they get or the touchdowns they get convert to points and you play other people on your team. And, and it's a way of participating in it. Well, this year we show up for the draft and most people are pretty civil about it. But this year there was one guy who came prepared uh, Chris Patterson actually played guitar for us today, came with a notepad, came with his laptop and pulled it up, and he was, he had made notes, he had a plan, he had done his research, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is not going to be good. But then I remember how he finished last year, and we'll see if this helps this year, but if it's anything like last year, I have nothing to worry about. 
But what he did was still so, so insignificant compared to what professional athletes do in researching before their own games. I mean, they watch hours of tape each week to prepare. They, they watch their opponents. They look at the offense and the defense and the plays that they run. They, they watch, if, if the baseball players watch the pitchers and, and the batters and see what, uh, what pitches are thrown and how often they're thrown, and they watch hours of tape just to have a little bit of an edge over their opponents. And if professional athletes put that kind of time and energy and effort into a sports game that at the end of the day has very little significance whatsoever at all, how much more time should we put into preparing to face our enemy, the devil? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Over the last couple weeks, we started this brand new sermon series called Rerooted, where we're going through the book of Matthew. And up to this point, what we've looked at is, is who Matthew is, who he's writing to, the, the background, what we saw are all the parallels that he drew back to the Old Testament so that his readers, those hearing this gospel account in the first century, the Jewish group there would, would see the connections between Jesus and the Old Testament prophecies how Jesus fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies in in their scriptures and how Jesus really is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And today what we're going to do, we're going to dive into chapter 4, but I want to start in chapter 3, which is really what we point to as the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 3 is when Jesus goes down to the, to the river where John the Baptist is preparing the way for him, where, where John the Baptist is preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes to John and says, John, I need you to baptize me. And John's like, oh, no, 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 no. I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus says, no, this, this needs to be done. I need you to baptize me. And this is the start to Jesus' ministry. This is the start of the coming of the Messiah, the start of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is what I expect to happen in the beginning. Matthew chapter 3, 16 to 17 says, when Jesus was baptized, he, immediately, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the scene from the movie that you would expect when someone comes in who's the main character. This is the scene where Jesus would then ride off with his group. He gathers his followers and he goes off and, and, and this is the, the big big start to his ministry. But then the very next verse kind of lets all the air out of the balloon and is not what I expected. Next verse in Matthew 4, 1 says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In preparation for that, Jesus spent some time fasting. And in verse 2, it says, After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, we're not going to get into the details and talk about fasting a lot today because in just a couple chapters, Jesus teaches his disciples about fasting and prayer. And we're going to, we're going to talk about fasting then. But, but to summarize, fasting is going without something in order to spend time with God. And so Jesus here goes without food, 
for 40 days and 40 nights. Anyone else gone 40 days without food before? Not many of us. I can barely go 40 minutes sometimes without food. And then potentially the most obvious line in all of Scripture, he was hungry. I'm sure he was. And it was at this moment after 40 days of not having anything to eat that that Satan saw Jesus and said, I bet he is at his weakest right now. And this is where Satan comes to attack Jesus, to tempt Jesus to sin. And what's so important about this, what I want us to see today, church, is that Satan's attacks really haven't changed at all. The the ways that Satan uh, tempts Jesus here are the same ways that he tempts us today. They look different. They they look a little bit different, but Satan's attacks haven't changed, and we need to be prepared. And I think what we're going to see from this text is how we can stand our ground against Satan and his attacks by mirroring, mirroring what Jesus did as he stood his ground against Satan. Matthew chapter 4, we see that the first temptation that Satan throws Jesus' way is against his physical nature. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with Jesus turning stones to bread. He is the Son of God. After all, he's more than capable of it. In fact, in just a few chapters, we see Jesus feeding 5,000 plus people with five loaves of bread and two fish, right? Jesus is more than capable of this and on another day perhaps would have. But his answer here in verse 4 reveals that there might be a deeper issue here. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's not the act itself that is wrong and evil and bad, but it's that he had set this time aside to fast, to spend time with God. He had dedicated this time for more time in prayer, more time in the word, for for being with God. And so to end this time simply because he's getting hungry rather than the time coming to an end, for him would be wrong. Satan is so good at finding good things, right things, okay things in our world, and twisting them and corrupting them. And even in in our lives today, he attacks our physical nature in much of a similar way. I think one of the greatest ways that Satan attacks our physical nature as people in our culture today, sex. Sex is a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful, glorious thing. Can I get an amen? Come on, come on, married people, amen? Hey, sex is wonderful. You don't have to be bashful and shy about it. It's great. In the boundaries of marriage that God set up and designed for marriage, Marriage between a man and a woman and those boundaries. Sex is a wonderful, amazing thing. And Satan has come and he has corrupted this beautiful thing, beautiful gift of sex. Adultery, lust, pornography, sex outside of marriage. All all these, these things are a corruption of that good gift. And they can wreak havoc in our lives. They can wreak havoc in our world. We all know of someone that that the temptation of, this, of our physical nature in this way has led to some 
not great outcomes, not the easiest life that we could have if we would follow the way God designed this world to be. And so Satan takes these things in our physical world and he corrupts them. I love food. Food is delicious. It is wonderful. I've had a bit too much of it. There's a, always a pastor's joke that goes around around Thanksgiving time of I hope no one's preaching about gluttony around Thanksgiving. And often we'll laugh and we'll chuckle about it. But it impacts how we live our life. And sometimes being a bit overweight means that I don't have the stamina to keep up with my two-year-old. It means that sometimes serving out in the heat gets to me a bit quicker and and I can't do that as well and as effective in serving the way God's called me to serve. And, and that's hard. And I also want to be very clear that when we fall through these temptations, which we inevitably will, doesn't mean that we're horrible people. Doesn't mean that we are evil people at all. But these are the way that God, that Satan attacks us in our lives, and, and we need to be aware of it. The second temptation that we see from Jesus, or from Satan to Jesus, is an attack on spiritual understanding. The devil took him to a high place, uh, to the holy city, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, I will give his angels according concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And here's a truth about Satan that we don't like to acknowledge or admit much, but, but that is that Satan knows this book better than we do. He knows this book inside and out, and even if you have an entire book of the Bible memorized, he still knows it better than you do. And he is really, really, really good at taking a particular passage and applying it somewhere else that it's not supposed to be applied, or at taking this passage and twisting it ever so slightly. I'm sure you've never heard anything that is just a slight twist on Scripture. God wants you to be happy. God will never give you more than what you can handle. Jeremiah 29, 11, for God knows the plans for you, plans to prosper, plans of hope. Satan is so, so good at twisting Scripture in ever so slightly ways where if we're not careful, we're not going to pick up on it. And here, Jesus' Jesus's response here, he doesn't argue with Satan he doesn't say, uh, you parsed the Hebrew incorrectly here. You got the wrong tense here. You're, you're understanding it incorrectly. No, he just simply says in verse 7, Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Satan might have even been right in this case. But there's another passage that just says, don't detest God. And, and we, it is our responsibility as believers, as followers of Jesus, to know this book to the best of our ability, to meditate on this book, to read this book, to know this book inside and out so that we can stand firm when, when false doctrines come into the church, when false teachings come into the church, when, when there are lies spread by Satan about what God says in this book that we can know for a fact what this book actually says. And the final test that we see from Satan to Jesus is against his mission 
here in this world. Verses 8 and 9 of Matthew 4 says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. There's a lot of debate over what kind of authority Satan actually has in this world. But there are a handful of passages that talk about Satan, at least as one degree or another, having authority and having power in this world. Uh, Luke's account of this story uh, says it in a slightly different way. He says, the devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. Sometimes we treat Satan with kids' gloves and we think, well, he has no power. He has no authority. And it's just not true. Satan was given some power and authority in this world. And I'm not sure to what degree Satan knew Jesus was going to do in this world. Maybe he knew exactly what was going to unfold. Maybe he just knew the, the outcome of what Jesus was here to do. But Satan gives him an out. Satan knows that, that Jesus is here to take back that authority, to take back that, that power to one degree or another. And Satan says, you know, you can avoid all this pain that's coming your way. You can avoid the torture. You can avoid the insults. You can avoid the beatings, the death that you're going to encounter, the pain and suffering. You can avoid all of that. And I'll just give it to you if you bow down and worship me. And out of frustration, he's had enough. Jesus told him in verse 10, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Church, we, um, we experience the exact same temptation from Satan in this world to have a shortcut for our mission here. Now, our mission here is to make disciples. Our mission here is to, to represent Christ. We, we see things like, Paul talking about the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And these things, this life that God has called us to, it's not a sprint. It's not going to be over quickly or any in defined period of time. No, it's a, it's a marathon. It is a long and grueling marathon that is hard. And there are no shortcuts but Satan will try to convince us there are. Satan will try to convince us that there, there's a shortcut. Well, you could give more money if you had this higher paying job. Think about the ministry you could do later if you didn't do it now. If you, if you did this other thing. And he, he, he messes with our mission of what we're doing in this world. I was talking to a friend of mine earlier this week who's considering another job and he said he was wrestling through the, the question of is this God's will or not? And I said, what's it matter? Almost for dramatic effect to kind of catch him off guard. But the reality, church, is that God doesn't care if you have a job at Kroger or Food Lion. He, he doesn't care if you have no kids or one kid or 12 kids. Uh, he doesn't care if you're married or if you're single. God, God doesn't care about what you do as much about how you do it. Now, now there are some things that he's told us to avoid, so he does care what you do in, in some ways, but, 
But at your job, wherever you work, how are you engaging with your coworkers? At your job, how are you treating your clients and your customers? How are you respecting your bosses and people above you? How are you treating people under you? If you're a parent, regardless of how many kids you have, how are you raising them in the ways of the Lord? If you're married, how are you treating your spouse? How are you living life as a married person? If you're single, how are you living as a single person in faith and following God in your life? It's less about our decisions that we make day to day. It's more about how we do it. God doesn't care where you go to eat lunch today. He cares about how you treat people who are working there. And Satan is going to do a lot of things throughout our lives to tempt us to sin, to fall away, to make decisions in a way that God would not be pleased of, in a way that's not laid out in Scripture for us, contrary to Scripture. And knowing about these ahead of time, I think, helps us stay on guard against them, helps us anticipate them, helps us know what areas Satan is going to attack. And I think that the best way that we can stay on guard and not fall to these temptations, it's a really subtle piece that was included in this story. I don't know if you caught it. But in the first two temptations, Satan starts by saying, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. If, if you are who you claim to be. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, he hasn't claimed to be anything. If you are who God claimed that you were when you, when you were baptized and you came up out of the waters and, and, the, and God from heaven said, this is my beloved son, if you are who God claims that you are, then prove it. Prove you are who God says you are. And I believe what Jesus was able to do in those moments is not fall for that junk. I am who God says that I am because God says that I am. You are who God says that you are, not because of anything you do, not because of anything you haven't done, not because of you, but because of who God says you are. I want you to look to the person on your left. Tell them you are a beloved child of God. Come on, you are beloved child of God. All right, turn to the person on your right. You are loved by God. You are loved by God. Come on, church, church online. Say it to someone who you're next to. All right, here's the important part, church. I want you to look the person in the mirror. I want to say you are a beloved child of God. You are loved by God. Who you are is not dependent on you. God created you in his image. He loves you because you are his child. And when we give our lives to Christ, our adoption into his family is not based on you or your actions or your inactions. It's based on the blood and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Period. And so many times these temptations start with the subtle, well, if you're a Christian, shouldn't you do this? If you're a Christian, shouldn't you believe that? 
You, you call yourself a Christian and you, you did what? And it's so subtle that he wins almost every time. But your identity, who you are, is not based in what you do. You're going to slip up. You're going to fail. I guarantee it. You have already. Maybe you have today. I have today already. And it's not something to take pride in because we fight against it. But who I am gives me the solid foundation and the starting place to defend myself against attacks from Satan. He hasn't changed his tactics much over thousands of years. And we can stand against them because of our sure foundation in who we are because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Father God, I am so grateful and thankful for what you did on the cross 2,000 years ago, for adopting us into your family, for it not being based on us, for giving us the strength and the ability and the wisdom to fight back against Satan and the schemes that he has laid out trying to trip us up. God, there's a lot that he throws our way physically in this world, spiritually. He attacks our mission here. There's an emotional peace that is tied to all of it. And, and God, I just pray for strength this morning for everyone here who's facing a battle, for everyone here who's being attacked by Satan, who has been feeding, getting fed these lies, who, who is having Scripture twisted at them in this moment. God, for those of us who are wrestling with this mission that you have given us in this world, God, I pray that because of the solid foundation in who we are, because of who you call us to be, that we'll be able to stand firm against the devil and his schemes. Lord, we love you. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.